and welcome back to This Is Our Design, Sound On Sight's Hannibal podcast dedicated to Brian Fuller's series based on the characters created by Thomas Harris. I am Sean Coletti, contributing writer at Sound On Sight, and I am joined, as always, by Kate Kolzik, TV editor at Sound On Sight. Kate, I, I just can't handle it anymore. I can't keep drinking. <laughs> what? <laughs> I'm confused and lost. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm actually not feeling very good today, so... I will not be partaking in, in the enjoyment of alcoholic beverages, although I guess it's kind of appropriate since this episode was a bit of a departure for the season, wasn't it? Well, it never made it to air, so you know it's, it's a little bit off kilter, but you know what? We can call in our guest to take your place then. We absolutely can. And this week we'll be talking about Season 1, Episode 4, Oof, written by Jennifer Schur and directed by Peter Medek. And just as uh, a reminder for listeners... We'll be treating this season of This Is Our Design as mostly spoiler-free for listeners who have not seen the rest of this season or future episodes of Hannibal in Season 2, although there will be a section at the end of the podcast uh, in which we will be talking about spoilery stuff, which will be clearly marked on the post. So just be aware of that. And with that, we'll introduce our guest to the podcast this week who will be joining us, and that is David Bax from Battleship Pretension, who is a returnee. Thanks for having me. I'm glad to step in and be the uh, the the pinch imbiber. Uh, <laughs> what, what will you be enjoying shot. this week? Uh, I have a whiskey and ginger ale, which is my standard uh, about the house uh, cocktail. Very nice. I'm enjoying a, a sour ale from the Two Brothers Microbrewery, uh, which is a lovely establishment that I am very conveniently located near. Um, it's called Fathom Sour Ale. It's rather tasty, a very different kind of thing. I was not, I did not know that sour ale was a thing until like a week or two ago. So it's pretty tasty. If I had been partaking, I'd be drinking uh, scotch from my favorite distillery, which is Talos here, because I just got my bottle, which I had accidentally left at one of my friend's house. But alas, I cannot. I'm just going to tease the listeners a little bit here. There's a reason for my choice of, of this particular beverage. For this episode, I was going to save it for an Alana-heavy episode because she is, you know, she is a beer drinker. Right. But, but I had to go with it for this one, and listeners can have fun trying to figure out why until hopefully a little bit later in the podcast. Hey, also, why? Just... Wait, wait, wait. Is, is the clue in the name? I, that would be saying too much. Oh, man. <laughs> I gotta figure I'm really this out. overplaying this. I'm really overplaying <laughs> this, guys. I'm, I'm expecting a lot of really clever analysis when we come to it. Oh, there's none. <laughs> Excellent. All right. We will begin now talking about Oof. And, and David, I wanted to begin by asking you to, to think about this episode as the episode that got pulled by NBC. And do you see qualities of this episode that separate it from the preceding ones as especially disturbing? Well, um, well, first off, before we get into that, I want to say why I volunteered. The number one reason I volunteered to talk about Oof is so that I could uh, repeat one of my favorite jokes from the West Wing, which is, why do they only eat one egg for breakfast in France? And, of course, it's because in France, one egg is enough. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that was the number one reason I wanted to choose this. But um, I, I think you have to, to to get to your actual question. You have to, get about, you have to think about context. Um, it wasn't just pulled because... The, because the episode was disturbing, most episodes of Hannibal are disturbing. This one is particularly disturbing, but it was directly after the Boston Marathon bombings. That's why 
that's why it was pulled. As the story goes, it wasn't even NBC's decision. It was Brian Fuller himself who said, maybe we don't need this out there. And I think because it's the idea, you know, the, uh, the Boston Bombers were, were, were brothers. And this is about, this is a story about brothers of a sort, uh, murdering people. Um, I think that's, if it hadn't been for the, the, the bombings happening, uh, less than a week before, I'm sure the episode would have aired. That said, it is a particularly disturbing episode because, uh, it's about family, which is what, um, most TV shows are about actually, in my opinion, uh, but in uh, in Hannibal fashion, it uh, takes a, I, I guess, a maybe less pleasant approach. The the context that you mentioned, I think, certainly is important to some degree. But it, just the fact that TV episodes can get pulled in this way for whatever content that they possess, regardless of context, I think is interesting just to look at. And I, I believe you're right that some of the ways that it approaches the material... It's certainly not as gruesome as other episodes of Hannibal, but of course, that's not really the way we evaluate how, um, I guess, psychologically disturbing some of these episodes are. And so when we get a scene like the the FBI coming to the house set to that Christmas tune and just the yeah. layout and the way that that's presented, um, I, I think without spoiling anything, is one of the, the more disturbing and resonant images of this entire series. And I like that, I like that the show has um, the commitment to, be, to not only go for those big sort of disturbing tableaus, but to keep that undercurrent, uh, you know, a- after they found the first crime scene, the scene, which is the standard sort of TV procedural scene of the technicians, you know, working out the clues and stuff, is taking place uh, with wide shots of Scott Thompson standing uh, in between two dead bodies that are covered, but they're clearly children, you know? Um, and, and so I like that. Um, I, I like that Hannibal is a show that is on the one hand, very much a network procedural, especially at this point in the first season. And then is also uh, the full embodiment of what Brian Fuller is envisioning it to be. And it, it, it doesn't, uh, it doesn't pick and choose when it's one or the other. Uh, there's elements of both and everything. Okay, apart from how this might be um, a extraordinary episode in terms of these disturbing images or or content matter, this also feels to me like the first episode of Brian Fuller's Hannibal, the series that we're going to come to know. Did you also get that feeling, and without spoiling, um, did you notice any kind of aesthetic differences between this episode and the ones that we've been talking about for the past few weeks? Um, yes, I did notice some differences, uh, but I would, for me at least, this is not, this is not necessarily the Hannibal that it's going to come to be. I feel like episode three is more familiar to me in the the aesthetic of the show as compared to episode four here. But um, we've gotten to the reason that I chose the sour ale, and that's because I actively didn't like parts of this episode. I, I actively did not think they were well shot or directed. They were distracting. There were elements that just did not feel like Hannibal to me. Um, and so that's interesting that for you, Sean, it may have been the, like the show's elements coming into alignment. Cause for me, it was the, it was the opposite. So I look forward to discussing some of those scenes a little bit later, but, um, but yeah, I, David, what do you think? Uh, I'm very curious to, uh, 
to find out what you think didn't work because I don't know that I'm with Sean in the sense that this is um, Hannibal coming into its own. This is some that this is a, an exemplary episode of what the show is as a whole. But I do think this is. I almost felt when I was rewatching it last night, I almost felt like I cheated by picking this one because it's so, to me, both uh, narratively and thematically tight that uh, it's really easy to pick up to, to to talk about and pick apart. So I'm. To me, the episode's a complete success. I, I want, I'm curious as to what you didn't like about it. I'm. I should clarify that this maybe more than being the the first episode of Hannibal. To me, it's it's more the one that I guess feels like uh, it's bridging that gap between the earlier version and what we're going to get later. So maybe not necessarily completely representative, but more than last week, I think giving indications that it's going in that direction. And that thematic and narrative tie that you mentioned, David, is a big part of that. But let's go ahead and get into that then, Kate, and let's talk about some of the things that didn't necessarily work. Okay. The the big thing for me, there's a couple moments or scenes, I should say, that really felt off. And um, a big one is our therapy session we get with Will and Hannibal earlier on. They they open on the scene opens with a very tight close up on Will and then cutting back and forth to these incredibly uh, close you know face you know shots of the face of Will and Hannibal and then pulling out as it continues but it, it was incredibly distracting to me the the dialogue there also is very on the nose but whereas usually in those scenes we're further back we're at a respectful distance just like the characters are from each other. In this scene, it, it's right in their faces. And uh, when you have Will uh, surrounded by that bright red wall and you're right in his face, but the qu- it's, it hasn't built to that. It's cut directly to it. it. It was incredibly distracting. And then later in that conversation, we get this moving uh, camera it, while they're talking. There's no, at least I didn't see a reason for the camera to start moving, but it pulls back and it's just this motion for motion's sake, kind of dancing around the two of them while they have what was to me a very standard Hannibal and Will conversation, not one with particular meaning or significance. So there were, and there are a few other scenes as well where the editing was just, it didn't have the space that this show usually has in, in the dinner with Hannibal and Jack, the cutting back and forth, they're almost talking over each other. And that's, that's not how Hannibal or Jack communicate most of the time. I don't know. What did you guys think of those scenes? Uh, I mean, I I see what you're saying, that the, the close-up thing isn't something that a show does a lot. So I understand how that's jarring, but I don't think it's a bad choice. It's it's arch, to be sure, but that's, mo- you know, most of the aesthetic choices on Hannibal could be described that way. So I, I don't, uh, I, I, I disagree that it's poorly directed, but I respect your... Uh, right to not like uh, the way it was directed. You, you picked up on some things that I, I certainly didn't notice as I was watching that are that are interesting. And now that I think about it, um, maybe kind of did dig into the subconscious. Certainly the, the dinner scene with Jack, I, I got a feeling that that was somewhat different from what we usually see. And, and to me, maybe it was just the staging of it and not necessarily the, the cutting between the dialogue. Don't we usually see Jack or any of his guests... Um, to Hannibal's right side rather than across the table. I was thinking about that in the scene as well. Uh, I was trying to reflect and remember, I think we've seen both or either. Uh, I, I think it probably depends on how they want to frame it, but um, 
I do think they've done that before. But usually we often have three people eating together as we do at the end of the episode. And so then it, they formed sort of a, tr a triangle. So, you know, I'm, I'm not I'm not quite sure about that. But they did seem like they were kind of far apart. The candles that were used as well kind of stood out in a jarring way for me. And that's a very minor detail. But um, they, they didn't really fit with me for the, the stage design that we've seen in Hannibal so far. But that might just be me. But one thing that you were talking about reminded me of. Um, which is, I didn't necessarily have a question about it to pose to either of you, but it was something that stuck with me. It was the way that this episode ends. Um, and there is, I guess, whereas Hannibal usually has, like a, for me, a definitive thing that it's trying to say or do in shots, even when there's no dialogue, so just framing or whatever it's trying to communicate visually, the, the very last thing that we get um, is will going to sleep and before going back and rewatching this episode i had thought that the last thing we saw was the the dinner scene between uh hannibal alana and abigail and so that was such a, a strange decision to me uh maybe in the same way that some of the editing decisions were strange to you and then the other thing i just remembered i wanted to ask you guys about was that sort of the end the way the the episode ends where and I promise for the listeners out there there's many things that I really really like about this episode to love so I'll get there I'm not all negative on this episode uh, but uh, I I wanted to ask you guys about the the conclusion of of like the Molly Shannon arc of that of the case of the week I guess because for me it ends really quickly and very abruptly and I wanted to spend more time I didn't need an answer for her motivations, but I wanted to spend more time with, uh, with the kid and with Molly Shannon. And we get very little to, to none in the, uh, the denouement as it were. Um, how was the pacing of that? For you? Cause there's no reason that everything needs to be this long standoff and everybody talks. I can't fault the show for going a different way with that. It might actually be refreshing to a lot of people, but that also, that also stood out to me as being a bit jarring. I, I, I guess because I tend to think of the cases of the week as being uh, the 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 metaphors or the analogies for what's really going on, um, I'm okay with the idea that okay, it's reached its conclusion. Uh, we don't need it anymore. Uh, you know, I, I this uh, as much as I'd like to talk about it, Hannibal as a as a procedural, it's not it's not law and order. It, you know, I don't. Um, I, I I guess I'd, I'd, I don't require those story beats because I feel like we're getting my main focus is on what's going on with everyone else and we're getting uh, a full story there. So I, I feel like it reached its conclusion. It all uh, was logical and I'm, uh, I, I'm, I'm okay with that. I think I actually had the opposite reaction to you, Kate, in that I sometimes want Hannibal to be doing exactly what you're saying. Uh, and that's to spend a little bit more time, unraveling that after we've reached somewhat of a resolution, but just to kind of comment on what's been happening. And to me, that scene between Jack and the kid in the car um, was a way of doing that in, in a way that it's like in opposition to a lot of the other things that we'll see in this season and the series overall, where we don't even get a scene like that. Uh, and so even though it didn't necessarily involve Molly Shannon's character in that scene, I felt like it, accomplish that job of what you're saying but that's that's the thing i'm talking about is i think that scene is much more about jack than it is about the kid because i mean that's what 
leads to the final uh, scene with Jack and and his wife, where he asks about um, them having kids. Certainly, uh, certainly, yeah. And so, so again, it's it's to me, it's it's more about what it's triggering in the main cast. Well, and maybe it's just because Molly Shannon is so damn good, and she's very good here. I like that they yeah. wait so oh, long sorry. to introduce her. That's to... I, that's exactly the point I was going to make because in my memory it wasn't the case. I was watching it last night. It's been you know over, a little over a year since I since I saw it. Uh, I was watching it last night and I uh, really was like, when is Molly Shannon going to come up? And it's <laughs> it, yeah, it, it's really far into the episode, and I really like that choice. Sorry, uh, I stepped on you. No, no, that's, no. that's good. It's all good. The, ch- the choice actually mirrors what we talked about in the pilot, um, which is that it, it's almost identical in terms of the the timestamp that Molly Shannon's character comes in when or around the same time that we first see Hannibal Lecter in the pilot so that's a, an interesting parallel that's being drawn not necessarily oh. that uh, that those two characters are similar entities but just that um, I guess a kind of maybe stewing evil that kind of needs time to marinate before it actually like comes to us well I also like the idea uh, both both with Hannibal and with whatever other monster of the week it is that um we can we can feel their presence and their repercussions they're already having an effect on us and on the characters before they've even shown up and i think that is uh, that i'm just thinking now that maybe that hints at um who hannibal is in general that he's um the the sway that he holds over everyone else in his life um he seems to be able to do from a distance when necessary and this would seem to illustrate that. I don't know. That's a thought I just had. And it's definitely a strong theme throughout the episode with you know, and the show. Like you were saying, David, so much of television is about families, either biological or constructed. But uh, to have family be such a strong theme with our killers and uh, with the victims, but then specifically with Hannibal. I mean, at that, that last scene, or not the last scene, but the the most memorable perhaps closing scene we get is with Hannibal and Abigail and Alana and yeah. uh, to have that sort of family tableau happy ish <laughs> uh, counteracting or, or being compared to these f- so violent and gruesome family dinners from earlier in the episode is really significant. And we'll talk more about that when we get to spoiled meat. <laughs> um, can can I go back to something that uh, was mentioned, which is the uh, Sean mentioned the very last shot of Will going to sleep. Um, you cannot no. go back to that. No. Oh darn. Um, <laughs> okay, well this is I, I want um, I'm going to do it anyway because I wanted to ask you guys an opinion on this because I thought about this last night, but I don't know what it means. First, we see I can't remember Gina Torres's character's name. It's a uh, Bella. 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 We see Bella and Jack both turn off the light and turn over and go to sleep. And then we see Will turn over. And it reminded me of earlier in the episode during the therapy session uh, when Will was talking about how he would imagine himself doing things at the same time that Garrett Jacob Hobbs was. Uh, And so that seemed like it was an intentional uh, parallel of that. But I don't know what it means, what it's supposed to suggest about Will and Jack or even Will and Bella, if that's even a thing. Uh, I don't know. Did that did that resonate with either of you, or um, was I just up too late? Oh, I can always find a, a parallel. Uh, Sean, any thoughts, or I can jump in? Um, I had that 
did not even cross my mind consciously, but now that you mention it, uh, I think at various times, or, or perhaps at all times, Will's being pulled in, in two or more directions, and um, having Garrett Jacob Hobbs be one of them, and having probably Jack in that instance, and, and not necessarily Bella be the other one, I think that works rather well. Well, and I would also tie it to our Garrett Jacob Hobbs stand-in in the these final scenes, which is Hannibal. Abigail sees Abigail sees Hannibal as her father. And so we go from a scene of three uh, happily having enjoying dinner and Abigail's the happiest we've seen her probably in the show at that point to uh, to a couple without the ch discussing children. Uh, but sadly for because of information we'll find out later in a later episode and then to one person who's completely alone so while abigail and alana and hannibal are enjoying this meal together uh jack and bella are going to sleep and there you can tell there's tension or unhappiness there but at least they have each other to wills by himself was there more that you wanted to say about that david no i i wanted to bounce it off you guys and i think that uh that turned out to be fruitful way to go good for me <laughs> it's been bounced <laughs> um we're certainly going to get more into family because I want to unpack that quite a bit to, to kind of be the, the center of this podcast. But before we go there, um, I wanted to ask David, Will talks about how prisoners will sometimes bond with their captors as a way to survive. And if they don't, they become quote unquote breakfast. And then we immediately cut to Hannibal making breakfast. And uh -huh. I would also mention that we also hear Hannibal directly identify Abigail as a survivor earlier in the episode. Um, can you apply this relationship between a prisoner and a captor to what's going on with Abigail and Hannibal right now? Um, I, I, I think it's meant to make us think of, uh, maybe remind us, uh, not that we necessarily need reminding of who Hannibal Lecter is, but, uh, to, to, you know, there's this, there's a comparison. Abigail very much feels like a prisoner at the Institute. Uh, you know, she talks about, trying to wanting to leave and it not being her bed and all this stuff. Uh, and so on the very surface, Hannibal getting her out is him getting her out of prison. But I think that cut is maybe meant to remind us that she's just gone from one prison, uh, you know, from one captor to another. Uh, and also is it maybe meant to, uh, uh, I don't know. This is, uh, we could maybe talk about this more in the spoiler section. This is more foreshadowing than anything else, but to maybe think of her as less a victim, not that, not that she isn't a victim, but um, Will talking about these survival tactics, I think uh, gives us a clue as to how to think of, of Abigail. She seems like she's uh, like so many others putty in Hannibal's hands and is just doing whatever he wants uh, and I think Will's speech is maybe meant to clue us in that there might be some some real agency on her part in that anyway. Well, and it's also not as if it, it also highlights for me, at least that she's still in threat. So it's not like she is a a victim who a traumatic experience has happened and now she's trying to recover. That is true. But while she's trying to recover, she is still undergoing what, you know, what is a. Uh, what will become likely a 
traumatic experience because Hannibal has taken an interest in her, and that's that's never a good thing, guys. It's never a good idea when, for, to, to be ha- spending this much time with Hannibal Lecter. Um, but it's, for me, it sort of highlights this notion that she's still under threat, and she's you know she goes from like you were saying, David, a physical prison to maybe a psychological one as she opens her mind with drugs to to Hannibal. Such a bad idea. Um, but she doesn't know what we know, of course. Uh, so it, it's, it's this notion of, like you were saying, David, I, I think that's a very astute point, uh, that she is trying to survive and trying to, to make her way in a perilous situation, which is still, uh, you know, still continuing. And she has Alana there to help her, but really, no one can really help her as much as maybe she can herself in trying to deal with Hannibal. For me, this idea of prisoner and captor is on some level, just a very good reminder to the audience um, to not be totally swayed by Hannibal and not to be so attracted to him that you're blindsided, that he is still exerting his influence, despite the fact that he's also helping Abigail. I think in many ways that he really is, uh, but he's certainly doing it for his own ends. And it also helps, I think, when we get that... um, that mention in the Hannibal and Jack dinner about the rabbit, which is not in fact a rabbit, but somebody that Hannibal killed. So um, <laughs> those are both great reminders, I think, to that, that we should still be aware that Hannibal is such a menacing presence. Well, and also to, as a reminder, when we first are have obviously we're taking our experiences of having seen these other the rest of this this, this first season and this entire second season as we rewatch this episode at least for me, when I first saw this, I was still trying to tell myself, well, we haven't actually seen him kill anybody. How do we know? That could be actual pork, you know? <laughs> We're so much more wary of Hannibal with having seen these other episodes. While we are keeping this discussion spoiler-free, our our take on the character and his interactions with, with Abigail are are clouded by what we've seen since then. So as you know, a first-time viewer watching this, at least I remember that for me, I was much less uh, scrutinous of, of Hannibal's motives throughout much of this, like almost the entire first season than I am now. You know, I was thinking about that, too, in a, in a similar way. That, I mean, you're, you're talking about like literal things we know, but also having seen two seasons of, of this show, I think we we are now accustomed to the idea that because of because everyone in the show has some sort of psychological damage or problem um Everyone is kind of in uh, uh, what's the what's the narrative term? An untrustworthy uh, narrator. What's unreliable the narrator. Un- unreliable narrator. Uh, and so um, I did think about that while watching this. That I feel a little less, um, you know, safe in the storytelling. Especially, you know, and it seemed ironic in an episode like this that seemed compared to where this series will go, um, a little more narratively conventional. But I watched it with a more suspicious eye because I now know. Not to trust anyone. Um, and Hannibal is actually affecting the way I watch other TV shows now <laughs> in that same way. Or, you know, someone will say, like, can you believe so-and-so died on the show last night? And I'll be like, well, I'm not, you know, we didn't see a, sh- a five-second shot of their dead body. So I'm not entirely sure that person's dead because because I'm a Hannibal fan. <laughs> That's a great point. And, yeah, it's it, Hannibal, like other TV series, I think, works really well in context. And so um, one of our guests last week mentioned 
parallel between Hannibal and Rectify, and just rewatching some Rectify episodes recently, um, there are absolutely incredible similarities there that I would not have known uh, had that not been brought to my attention. But it's it's great how TV works like that, I think. Um, but let's move on to, to family, finally, because there's a lot to talk about here, I think. The institution of family being um, certainly this episode's biggest concern and interest. So it asks the question, what makes a family? Are you born into it, or can you create it yourself? Uh, and I wanted to look at all of these characters, if we can, in the context of family, beginning with Jack, whose wife we meet in this episode. But Kate, what is family like for Jack Crawford? I think that's still very much a mystery for us at this point, because we are first introduced to, to Bella so so briefly. Um, we can infer certain things from what he said and just his demeanor. He seems like he could be the father of a teenage daughter, for example. <laughs> I would be afraid to be that teenage daughter's first boyfriend. Um, but but he, you can there are certain elements in the way he treats his team that give you an idea of maybe what he would be like uh as the paterfamilias or as uh you know part of in part of a larger family either siblings or, or whatever but um but i think we can't quite know yet i was specifically thinking about bella as i watched this in in relation to this not airing because i know if this had aired i would have been like oh my god because gina torres it's so cool. And so I actually kind of really appreciate the way that she's teased here. And then she does later come back. Uh, Cause that was the reaction I had when she came back on the actual show when it aired. Um, but I had that mo I didn't, I didn't get to sort of think about the two of them for a week while I waited to spend more time with the character. So, um, so I thought, I thought I liked that approach. When did you first see Oof? I saw the you know, NBC put those little uh, deleted scenes sort of things. They put together a set of scenes from the episode on their website after, I, th I don't remember if it was before they aired Coquille, the episode five, or uh, if it was after, but I, I watched those when they became available. And then when I did later get the DVD and watched the episode when I, when I got the DVD and of course I didn't watch it earlier cause that would be stealing and pirating and that is bad. <laughs> Well, it was. I saw it in order because it was available on iTunes, which is still kind of BS. That oh, we're gonna pull this thing down unless you want to pay three bucks or two mm -hmm. bucks, I guess, or whatever. But um, I was just yeah, I was just curious because I did shell out the two bucks to NBC to watch it uh, before I watched the next one. Mm -hmm. But yeah, so I, you know, introducing Bella like that and letting us sort of ponder about Jack and his family and why they don't have kids maybe and why are they like when I watch that scene the first thing that comes to mind is a strained relationship because we've seen that so much on police procedurals where the per the guy's married to his job and doesn't spend enough time at home and etc uh, so that's probably what I would have first assumed but you know we do later get more exploration of that relationship and it is much more interesting than the guy who's married to his job and doesn't spend time at home. Uh, David, what did you think about, about well, Jack and family? Well, that cliche you're talking about, about the cop being married to his job is kind of what I was talking about earlier when I, and I know I was being, uh, you know, rhetorically uh, hyperbolic saying that all TV is about family, but so many shows are about exactly that. The idea that a group of people will form a family and fall into certain familial roles when they spend enough time with each other. And that 
in essence becomes their uh, real family, or at least their more important family. Um, it, you know, uh, I always I always think of the HBO's Sopranos tagline. I can't remember for what season, but it was family redefined. Uh, but that's kind of what TV does uh, all over the place. You know, you look at from Buffy to Cheers to uh, Hill Street Blues, or you know, a million other cop shows are about uh, de facto families. Uh, anyway, that's what I was talking about here. Uh, but earlier, uh, in this case, um, as far as but that that feeds in, I guess, to why you know why Jack and Bella um, never had had kids. It clearly isn't because of you know i don't know medical issues or sterility or anything like that um because because of what jack says uh they they just haven't and i think it's because um jack is a father to the people who work uh under him and uh that his relationship with bella has probably suffered because of that and you're right it is a thing we've seen a million times but um, I appreciate Hannibal's willingness to to dive into it and um, to treat it not as a not in the way that we've come to see not as a you know when when Buffy did it it was sort of almost uh, Buffy's my favorite show of all time but it was like a warm hearted like isn't this great that we can find this family you know oh, but um, and then there's the other version which is what Kate was talking about about the cliche of the guy who ignores his family. Um, this is maybe uh, in Hannibal fashion. It's like, it's great. We found a family. We love each other, but, uh, everything's also, um, completely toxic all the time. Uh, just as it would be in a, in a real family, potentially. And I feel like I'm talking in circles now. So I'm going <laughs> to, no, this is this isn't exactly the, the way in which I think that we should be talking about this. So not necessarily family in the, the literal and traditional sense that we think of it, but in the ways that you've been mentioning. Um, the forensics team in this episode, absolutely, to me, uh, is an example of a, a close-knit family. They even get a scene by themselves, which I found wonderful and unusual, because I don't remember that ever happening in this series. Uh, we, we get a sequence with just Beverly, Jimmy, and Brian, uh, separate from all of the other main characters. Um, but, you know, their conversation and their banter is great, where Brian talks about if, um, you know, he would have shot his sisters if that would have got them out of the bathroom and all of the, the snide remarks that they make about that. It feels like a very lived-in family, um, more so than any example that we've seen, in the, seen of them this season so far. I don't even think we got any of them last week, right? That, that was... The single thing that I think the the series as a whole most suffered from the exclusion of this episode when it was originally airing, uh, those scenes of of the CSI guys, the techs, because um, as great as Molly Shannon is and as wonderful as several of the scenes are, this is by far the most human any of those characters has been. And so to have, you know, that discussion of who's the first sibling and middle sibling and youngest, like that tells us so much about who they are and just their interaction. This goes so far towards making them human and, and relatable and informing everything else we see of them that it really is a shame that most viewers did not see this. I completely agree with that. And I mean, let's keep going with this with other characters. Um, Will specifically says that, that family is like an ill-fitting suit. It's a very foreign concept to him. Um, 
David, could you talk a little bit, little bit about Will in this context? Because we learn some pieces of information about his family, but obviously he has trouble relating to the people that he's surrounding with. Yeah, I'm not sure what um, it, it. It feels like that um, Will, again, being unreliable, is holding two conflicting views in his head, um, because he talks about yeah, family being an ill-fitting suit. But then he also there's another uh, recurring uh, motif, I guess, in this episode. Is recurring motif is probably repetitive. Motifs are recurring, right? Anyway, um, is uh, boats. And um, Will, at the beginning, starts is talking about walking away from his house and seeing it at night with the lights on across the field and thinking of it as a, as a boat, which, by the way, is, uh, if I recall correctly, straight out of Red Dragon, the book. Um, you know how people who have read the Game of Thrones books are, like, uh, uh, snobbish about it? That's me with Red Dragon in this show. <laughs> um, uh, but uh, so there's... There's that the idea of boats as safety, and then we uh, uh, introduced at the beginning, and then we later learn that that's what his dad did. His dad worked in boatyards, and he, um, though he felt out of place at school, always the new kid. There's something clearly in Will that equates his father and his father's job in boats with safety. Uh, so, um, again, to repeat myself, it's it's a conflicting, it's a conflicting viewpoint. Maybe. Uh, Will feels um, uncomfortable in these de facto families, be they school or work or what have you, um, but has more of an attachment to his real uh, family, or at least his dad, than uh, he lets himself realize. When you bring up that quote from Will, it actually just, I'm, and again, this is probably just stupid uh, BS, but it made me think of the that memorable line from Gatsby about, uh, you know, looking out over the the bay or the water to the green light at the end of the pier. And so looking out over the fields to the home, you know, and, you know, in the center, like a light shining out. Um, and I'm curious what you guys think of that, if this sense of home for Will is something of security and and something firm for him to hold on to, or if it is an illusion that he is, you know, unable to grasp just as his other colleagues are surrounded by family. He's surrounded by his dogs and we love the dogs. The dogs are great, but yeah, I don't think all of them got family? sausage. It kind of bugged me. <laughs> when Hannah walked in, I was like, you missed a couple. Some of those dogs really could use a piece of sausage. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know if we want them eating that sausage, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, but what do you guys think about that? Yeah. My immediate reaction is that it would be, uh, the latter, that it is illusory. And I don't really see Will Graham as a character who feels at home anywhere. Um, it, it, it may be that he experiences fleeting moments of feeling at home, but I don't think that's tied to any place specifically. To me, it'd be more tied to states of mind or connections with other characters. But those connections are not so strong. You know, we see him doubt himself uh, about his relationship with Abigail in this episode by not giving her the present, which was uh, to help her or to teach her uh, fishing. This is exactly, this goes back to exactly what I'm talking about, the idea that uh, Will has an idea of who he is, and even though he's troubled by it and is in therapy for it, there's some sort of uh, comfort, at least familiar, familiarity 
defining himself in this certain way as this outsider, uh, you know, someone who doesn't fit in or doesn't understand this stuff. But he's uh, ignoring the part of himself that is actually yearning for that. Um, That's why, you know, he's not he doesn't say that he thinks of himself when he's in his house at night as being on a boat. He sees himself in, you know, if you take his analogy to uh, it's, you know, logical conclusion or whatever, he's a drowning man. You know, he's looking at a boat from the sea uh, and not recognizing what that means. And that's exactly the thing. Uh, it goes back to what I'm talking about him. Um, the idea of fatherhood means more to him than he uh, uh, lets on, which is why he thinks of boats as safety, because that's what his dad was. And now you've got the same thing where he wants to be a father figure to Abigail, but he's doubting himself. Um, he's getting in his own way by not uh, um, not giving her the present. And that blinding himself to his own uh, weakness or yearning when it comes to fatherhood, both being a father and having a father, probably keeps him a little bit in the dark about um, who Hannibal is exactly um, and what his relationship to Hannibal is. And probably the same thing with Jack as well, because he's, uh, again, I'm repeating myself, but he's uh, um, defining himself as either a son or a father to people without uh, letting himself recognize that he's doing so because it doesn't fit into his idea of himself. And that makes the decision to, because we've discussed this in the previous episodes of this uh, of the season of Hannibal, the decision to to change Will's status, as it were, where you know in the books he's married and has an adoptive kid, here he's alone. That decision from Brian Fuller and company makes it makes that element all the more interesting. I want to linger just a little bit more on this idea of family, and maybe just talk about it generally. I've been rereading um, some Jonathan Franzen, who's a writer, very, maybe not concerned with uh, the institution of family, but who certainly writes about it a lot. And listening to interviews with him, he talks about things that I think are tied to what we hear Molly Shan's character say in this episode about being born into a family. And whereas that character believes that that doesn't necessarily denote family, uh, Franzen's talked about that just being something that you have to accept, you know, it's what you're given and you have a certain obligation to, to love that family to some degree. Um, I just maybe wanted to get your thoughts on what your conceptions of family are and what family means to you. I mean, I don't necessarily want you to tell me um, you know, the relationships that you have with your Wait, family. Wait, do you want me to, do you want me to tell you about my mother? Yeah, go <laughs> for it, you know, <laughs> but, but you know, just, uh, it's importance, you know, it's certainly something that everybody has to think about at some point. And it's an issue that, like you said, David, not, not just that this episode brings up, but that TV and any kind of media that has storytelling as a part of it, I think brings it up as well. Well, I, I'm not going to go into my specifics about my family, but, um, one thing I have learned that again, ties into this idea of will looking at his house from a distance is that, uh, <laughs> this sounds like I'm being, I don't know, uh, glib or whatever, but I understood and appreciated my family, both my immediate family and my large extended family better the further I got from them, <laughs> you know, uh, when I was so, you know, I, cause I come from a huge Catholic family who are always, you know, there's, there's a birthday or a christening or a graduation or something or other, uh, like every weekend, my whole family are, you know, getting together for something. Uh, so I grew up, like like the Sopranos always with family uh, around or people that weren't really family that you think of as family. 
Um, and I had an idea of myself as this black sheep. Um, and moving away, uh, I think helped me, uh, redefine who my family is, what my relationship is with them and appreciate them more. And I think, uh, that's, that might be the reason why in TV we see people form families other than their natural ones, because there may be, there's too much damage. They're too sunken in to what that is. And you can kind of start fresh at a new job or with a new friend group or at a, the bar you hang out at or, or whatever. And, um, it, it's, it's easier to understand how you feel about family and find a place in it. If you can, uh, come at it from, from scratch or at least from, di- from a distance. The element of family, cause I, I wrote a article about enlisted and its depictions of, of brothers and family and how there's almost no depiction of family specifically on network sitcoms, but there are very few families with adults, adult characters, all adult characters on television right now, especially on network television. The thing that a lot of shows lack when they do their build, build their, um, you know, ad hoc or, 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 um, constructed families, which is a theme I really enjoy. I love in television. I mean, David's already said it. Buffy's my favorite show. That's a show all about a family. But the element of family that is often missing from representations of constructed families is history. Because your family is somebody who has known you your entire life, almost by definition. Most of the time, they've known you since you were a child. And so there's a history and years of experience with someone through probably good times and bad, hopefully not, you know, one more of one than the other. But when you build a new family, when you have uh, a group of friends or, or you find uh, your, your place amongst uh, a workplace or any of these other settings that are so common um, on television as, you know, places where people build a family, that is an element that gets lost. And so that's something that I always think about when I'm looking at constructed families. It's, uh, it's, it's an element that, that, I mean, I don't want to under undermine or, or under uh, state how significant built families are for a lot of people for probably a very large percentage of America and really the world probably. But there is this element of, it's easy to build a family when you've only known someone, you know, be like, we're best friends when you haven't had to see that person at their very lowest. And also they don't, they haven't seen you. They haven't seen all your – I mean, that's why maybe it's easy yeah. to start a new family. Like starting a new Twitter account, you get to invent yourself, <laughs> you, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and that's um, that's appealing on one level. It's also dangerous on another because to tie it back into Hannibal and uh, Hannibal the show and Will the character, Will clearly has stuff – it's clear to me that he has stuff that he's not dealing with. Um, and part of that might have to do with his father and – the fact that he's not dealing with it is making him worse at his job and making him perhaps unable to to catch Hannibal or even realize who Hannibal is. Uh, but because it's it's easier, it's more convenient to stick with the created families because you get to be who you want them to know you as. Well, and it's something that you mentioned previously, Sean, in, in an earlier podcast, this element of just how well certain of the characters know each other before the show even starts. I do think that's an important element to the Will and Alana relationship. The fact that they have been aware of each other and have known each other and have been on friendly terms 
for quite a while really does uh, deepen that relationship or how, you know, the amount I can, you know, respect it. Maybe Alana's seeming to understand who Will is because we don't know quite how long they've been in each other's spheres. So there's more of a chance that they've uh, seen each other at various points and in different situations that gives each other uh, a bit more of a glimpse into who that person actually is. What I'll say quickly about family, um, for me, the real horror of this episode is in how these kids at their age, and and even CJ, who is a bit older, um, to me, the concept of family is so, like, omnipresent that you can't really quite understand it. And so, uh, David, you mentioned having that distance being the thing that has made those bonds stronger, and I would agree that for me, as somebody who grew up with a relatively, or I wouldn't even say relatively, like a very good family structure, I was very lucky that um, my parents, you know, remained together, are still together, very much in love, and, and that is great. But not having any conflict there, like, made me take it for granted in a way that, um, having spent four years away completely, uh, kind of developed those relationships as things that I began to understand and appreciate as what family like really meant to me. I don't know if I'm explaining that correct, but, um, you know, I, now my brother isn't really just my brother. He's one of my best friends. And so that deeper understanding that comes with that distance, I think, um, certainly helped in my case. And so, uh, isn't that what college is for? You, you go, you leave the house when you're in a, like a terrible, annoying teenager and you come back and you go, oh, thank you so much. <laughs> this is all <laughs> the stuff you guys have been doing for me. Oh my God. I see my friends <laughs> who don't have this to rely on and I'm so happy that I do. Absolutely. I would say so. Um, and that's, that's what makes some of these issues really interesting. And I'm, I'm glad that Hannibal brings it up and Brian Fuller because he and his writing team are very good at doing these bigger themes and getting us thinking about it. Um, but we'll, we'll finish that there and move on to our recurring segments, the first of which, of course, will be Kate's Classical Corner. And, Kate, there is classical music in this episode as opposed to last episode. Is that right? Yes, there are three that I will be discussing, and um, they're each pieces that I have very strong connections with and, and really enjoy. The first is, it's it's so brief, but i I got to talk about it, and that's when uh, when Hannibal is at Will's and he goes over and plays you know kind of plunks out a couple notes on the piano yeah he doesn't just plunk out a couple notes he plunks out the opening of Stravinsky's Rite of Spring Uh, are you guys familiar with that piece from uh the Disney movie right the dinosaurs yes yeah yeah from Fantasia Fantasia. um what what the actual uh story it's the that's the opening uh, bassoon solo it's hugely famous if you are a bassoonist, you are going to have to learn it and play it on every audition. Um, it, it, right of Spring, what it's actually about, is not dinosaurs, I'm sorry to tell all the listeners, but it's about a pagan ritual uh, where a group of elders sacrifice a young maiden. Uh, so it's about killing a child. <laughs> so to have that be the, like, the couple notes that are plunked out by Hannibal, and then in this episode specifically was just, I was geeking out. I was totally geeking out. Um, also, it's an amazing piece, and it's super fun to play, and it's great, so you guys should all go listen to it. But uh, that's the first one. Then 
when uh, Hannibal and Alana share a beer, there's Chopin Nocturne uh, Opus 32 Number 1 in B major in the background. It's a very simple and, and beautiful piece, and I look forward to discussing that scene a bit more uh, when we get to Spoiled Meat, but I don't want to say too much about it now. Uh, I'll just say that I really enjoy that piece, and Chopin will become much more prominent in the scoring from this point on in the show. So this is one of those elements, Sean, where I would agree that it's you, you, this, the classical selections in this piece, in, in this episode, feel much more in keeping with what we're going to get later. And then later when we have the dinner with Jack, we get Chopin, Chopin's Nocturne number... Sorry, Opus 9, number 2 in E-flat major, which is possibly Chopin's most popular piece. It's uh, it's just it's gorgeous. It's wonderful. It's one of those pieces that every beginning, um, or well, I guess intermediate young pianist um, learns and probably plays terribly. There's probably a, a VHS of me playing it terribly somewhere in my parents' house. Um, but it, it's just wonderfully, um, it's just wonderfully composed. And, and the of course, the the performance that they use for the show is, is an excellent one, but it, that's, you know, that was one of the big, most popular pieces for Chopin and obviously earlier in his career, it's only Opus 9, it's only the ninth, um, you know, Opus or work from him, but, but no, it's, it's a lovely piece and, uh, fits much more with the, that relationship and really Hannibal as he presents himself than I would say maybe the Bach does, uh, having the Brandenburg concerto in the previous dinner scene with Jack and, and Will was, it was a lovely piece, but um, you going more towards the romantic instead of the Baroque uh, is, is where we're going to be going with a lot of the, the classical selections for Hannibal um, with a couple notable exceptions, but in general that going for that more, um, uh, lots, lots of suspensions, more, more uh, added notes, and less, uh, more, more complicated tonalities. I guess uh, of the Romantic era is very fitting with with Hannibal and what's going to come next. So I really enjoyed all of those pieces. Um, as for the scoring in in the episode, I just again we talked about this last week with episode three, but clarinet is everywhere in the score. Sean, did you notice that? Yeah, as soon as Abigail takes a sip of the tea, it just, boom, right there. It's right there. It's so prominent. And uh, there was a little bit of guitar earlier when we got the tableau, which I forgot to mention earlier. I'll, we'll talk about that that tableau or that projection we get from Will um, later maybe. But, um, but yeah, we got a little guitar there, which kind of ties into the um, episode two use of the guitar for Will. But, um, yeah, we get this really like kind of happy positive clarinet music when we're in that therapy scene with Will and Hannibal that I previously was complaining about. Um, and then uh, we get some cello with Abigail when she's discussing her, um, you know, killing of, uh, of the, the brother, that brother character from last episode, last week. And then, um, you know, there's just, again, there's just clarinet throughout so much of this episode and in another scene that we're going to talk about, spoil. Sorry, I've just there's so much of this is spoiled meat stuff, so I don't want to. I don't want to spoil. But there was a lot of energy and a lot of um, when they go to the house. There's very energetic scoring, which fits with the action element of that scene. But on the whole, there's a lot of really um, still music in this one, or at least that's what I'm more cued into. And um, then we do get a bit of vocal scoring when we have Jack with the kid in that scene that we've kind of already discussed. And so to have that be the scene where vocals or the voice comes in instead of um the clarinet i thought was was interesting does that mean anything to you guys why do we get 
the human voice in that moment when we haven't had it anywhere else all episode? I don't I don't know. I have no idea. Oh, come on, have a theory. That's what I do every week. <laughs> it's true. I do have to put you through that. Um David Friel. I don't I don't have, I don't have, I don't have a theory. Me, me, um that's that's why this is the classical corner is my favorite part of this this podcast because I am so bad at talking about music. Jack is at his most humane, so there are people singing. How about that? There you go. The, uh, I mean, typically you'd get vocals in like a choir or something, and I don't know, that maybe like denotes some of the the innocence that that child is regaining, perhaps, or um, I don't know. It might be tied to that, that now he's no longer under the sway of Molly Shannon's character and is returning to, well, he's not returning to his actual family, but he's he's put back into the context that he should be mentally. There we go. That's a, that's a good theory. I, listeners, let me know what your theory is. I, I would love to, to hear it, but I, that was just an element of the score that I noticed. But on the whole, my main thing is, again, as I've said several times now, the clarinet, and then I did really love the classical pieces that they use, that they chose. All right. Let's move on to the devil in the details. Just to remind listeners, smaller things that we notice in the episode, be they visual or otherwise. I'll begin by saying that... Lawrence Fishburne was in full Morpheus mode with the sunglasses and the shotgun uh, when they go to, <laughs> to take down Molly Shannon's character. I thought that was highly entertaining. Uh, David? Um, well, I'm glad I've been on this show before because you, you sprung this on me the last time, uh, this segment. So I, I was prepared to talk about the devil in the details. And I love – now, Kate, earlier you mentioned Hannibal and Alana sharing a beer, but that's not entirely true. She has a beer. He has a glass of wine. And I notice and he serves her his her beer in a Pilsner glass and he has a burgundy glass. And I just know that even though we're not even at his home or at his office, that he has a fully stocked fridge of various types of beers and wines and all the correct glassware to go with them. And is probably not even self-conscious about choosing the right one because he's Hannibal. He just knows this gets a Pilsner glass and this is going to go in a burgundy glass and I'm going to serve it uh, – the way it's supposed to go and doesn't even have to think about it. And that, that's what I liked, how just effortlessly sophisticated uh, Hannibal is. And I you noticed it because of the details. What's one. that? You stole one of mine. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Both of you remind me to get back to that when we get to spoiled meat because that just made me think of something that I think is kind of hilarious. So uh, to be continued in the spoiler section – uh, that's a great point, uh, David. And uh, to tie in with what you said, Sean, the first one I have here is I think I think Booming Jack is maybe my favorite Jack. <laughs> Class is dismissed. Class is dismissed. We, we, we get very, you know, we've got that wonderful moment in the pilot, uh, yeah. but we don't get that many as the show continues. And nothing will top that. You're talking about the use the ladies in the pilot? Yeah. Yeah, that's nothing will top that. But I feel like this is a solid silver, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, I'll just throw in a couple more, and we'll go once more around the circle. The virtual circle. I guess it's a triangle. I don't know. I imagine it as a circle, though. Um, <laughs> is it a flat circle? It's a flat circle. Everything's <laughs> a flat circle, damn it. For the rest of eternity, 2014 ruined everything about time. Um, I like that we see Will's drawer, and he has a bunch of the same clothes, which I think is interesting considering who he is. Uh, also that Hannibal has a taste of his own blood, which I don't I don't know really how to take that, but uh, was interesting nonetheless. And also Do you think, 
Yeah, go ahead. In that in that shot, this is what I was thinking. Is that really Mods Mikkelsen's blood? Because it looks like he really pricked himself and then blood. I don't know how you would get a little bubble of blood to come up on the thumb like that. Uh, I don't know if that was prop blood or if Mods Mikkelsen really did prick himself with the fishing hook for that scene. That's what, that's what I was thinking when I was watching it. I want to believe that that's method acting right there. Yeah. Just like, you know, anybody's had to get that, like, iron thing at the doctor. It, it, I feel like you just, you know, just get one really good shot of it, and then you could, you wouldn't need to, if you had to do it several times, several takes, that would be different, but, yeah. Right. I'm, I'm good with you guys on that one. All right, David, did you have any other ones? Uh, mm, not, not really. All right, Um. Kate. Uh, you know what? Actually, I do have one thing I want to bring up, the, a detail I want to bring up that I want to ask you guys about. Um, when um, when Will flashes to the vision of him cutting Abigail's throat, you, you know, do you remember that? He's talking about th- seeing himself as Garrett Jacob Hobbs, and yeah. we see him cut her throat the same way that her father did, but not in the kitchen. They're outside. Um, and he cuts her in the same way, and then he doesn't get shot the way Garrett Jacob Hobbs did, but he still seems to flail in a way afterwards. And I wish I had rewind and watched it again to see if that's what, if he's equating Garrett Jacob Hobbs involuntary uh, reaction to a bullet with some sort of almost ecstatic dancing movement. Strange. Did it, I didn't even, did anyone else that. think about that? No. I didn't even write it out any notes for that, and I should have, so shame on me. So I'm not sure what I think, but I want to go watch it again. That's an excellent point. Did you want us to try to analyze it right now? No, I we should. No, I, I made you guys. I have to go watch it again. <laughs> yeah. All right, well, that's something to think about and that listeners can chime in on. Uh, Kate, did you have any more details you wanted to mention? See, almost all my details are spoilery, so... Um, Should we move on to spoiled meat, then? I guess the last the last thing I'll say is just that, again, I've already said it, but I really do I really do uh, appreciate and respect Molly Shannon, and I, I wish other people had gotten to see this episode on, on TV. Uh, I'm a big fan of her turn on Enlightened, and even just, you know, her episode of Pushing Daisies and stuff, and I think a lot of people just have this image of her from SNL, and haven't been paying attention to everything she's been doing since and she's really good so uh just the the way that she handles that scene and and the um the quickie mart with the the paper towels and you know all that i just i really appreciate the details of her performance and um molly shannon's great i want to real quickly tell the story about the most awkward hug i've ever received in my life which was from molly shannon Uh, (laughs) i was (laughs) I was a production assistant, an office production assistant on a movie called Year of the Dog that she stars in. She's great in it. It's a Mike White film. And she li- she lives in New York or did at the time and it was shot out here. So she had, the production had rented her a house for, for the summer and two cars for her. She brought out her husband and her kids. Um, so for the summer that she was shooting, she was living in a rented house with two rented cars. And so the last day that they were packing up to go back to New York, the uh, assistant production coordinator drove me and another PA out to the house to pick up the car keys and we were going to go return these rental cars. And now the assistant production coordinator had helped Molly Shannon find the place they rented, had been working with her since, you know, since the spring, they knew each other. And the other PA had, had driven her around uh, during the uh, filming time. So she knew them. So she's like going down the line, giving, 
you know, thank you so much, Amy, giving Amy a big hug. Uh, thanks for driving me around, Manuel, giving Manuel a big hug. And then she gets to me, which is this is because I was in the office the whole shoot, the second time we've met in the entire five months. She doesn't even know my name. And but she had just hugged the other two people. So like I tried to signal with my eyes, like, you don't have to do this. And she signaled with her eyes, like, I think a precedent has been established here. And it was the most it was the most awkward hug that I have ever given or received in my entire life. But it was from Molly Shannon, so I I cherish it. That is amazing. That is delightful, <laughs> sir. That's perfect. Yeah. All right then. And with that, spoiled meat. With that, we'll go to spoiled meats and well, you know, Abigail drops a teacup. Did you not? Uh, sat both it's in upright. all caps. <laughs> <laughs> you both just screamed at me at the same time. What did you say? I said that I sat bolt upright when it happened, when I was watching it last night. I was like, oh, oh, my God. I <laughs> forgot that that happened and that it was that character who did it. And I, I put in all caps, teacup shattering, exclamation point. Yeah, the top of my notes to talk about today, it says families and boats and teacups. Perfect. <laughs> Those Perfect. are my things to talk about. <laughs> um, I mean, I just wanted to mention if there's anything that either of you want to say about it, uh, you can. But if not, Kate, I know you got plenty of stuff you want to talk about. Well, I mean, I don't. I haven't spent any energy thinking about what it means, other than guys, it clearly means something, right? <laughs> this well, is because their in. In season two, the idea, what Hannibal brings up, the idea of, you know, shattering a teacup and then um, being sad or whatever that it doesn't come back together. He is talking in code, I guess, about Abigail. Uh, At least my memory, right? Because he's, because uh, Will is talking about how he wanted to teach Abigail to fish and Hannibal is saying, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I took that from you. And uh, am I am I am I confusing scenes or is this the same conversation? Oh, I... we've just discussed at length on the podcast who he's referring to or or how many people he's referring to because in that episode, that's also the episode where Alana finds out and shatters at the end of the episode, and then of course we all know what happens in the finale where Will basically shatters. So I think anybody could be the teacup, but. Definitely, he's he may be specifically either talking about Will or very easily could be talking about Abigail in that scene. So then to have Abigail be the one who drops the teacup. Right. But he's lying about Abigail. That's the thing. Or he's giving us a clue, knowing what we know, where it goes. Because mm-hmm. I took it as him talking about Abigail, about the shattered teacup. But knowing he, he's intentionally like giving us a clue, like maybe he did put this one teacup back together. And maybe Abigail's not dead. And so um, <laughs> so I guess maybe the reason I sat bolt upright was because it had always been my assumption or at least my belief that um, Hannibal is referring to Abigail when he's talking about the shattered teacup. In specific, he's probably referring to a bunch of people in general, but specifically about Abigail. To have her drop the teacup seems like if I had been the world's smartest person a year and a couple months ago, I might have predicted the end of season two based <laughs> solely on her dropping a teacup. It's it's also great that that Hannibal's picking up the pieces immediately after she drops it. So yeah, I think yeah. In, in the original conversation in season two, um, when we get that shot of the the teacup kind of suspended, not in the actual setting of that episode, but it just shatters kind of in, in blackness. Um, that I think I was in agreement that it was about Abigail. So this this is a really really great scene to have this early for people who have watched that season. 
Well, and then also, of course, she drops it, but she drops it after trusting Hannibal implicitly and eat, drinking a bunch of his drugs and, <laughs> and opening her mind to his therapy. So, I mean, if there's no bigger symbol of her accepting his guidance and, you know, him as a paternalistic figure, it's it's this, you know, going with him to his house, eating with him, filling that role as his daughter. And so to have this be after, you know, it's the teacup of sure i'll trust you implicitly drop i mean come on <laughs> right uh what else are we gonna talk about in spoiled meats oh uh, well how about um it's like you were becoming him becoming that word that thomas harris loves so much and that mm -hmm. the show puts so much weight in or uh the fishing the lures is this when hannibal started planting human stuff in the lures i was I thinking about thought. that yeah, I don't. I don't think it is, but uh, I there's no evidence either way. How early do you guys think you started weaving all of these details that would let later come to you know fruition? I'd have to do. I mean, you guys would be because you're rewatching the whole season, maybe better because I haven't rewatched the first three first three episodes. But um, if he, I don't know that he was like sitting down and putting, I don't know, human pieces in that lore but it might have been where he got the idea um the other another spoiled meat thing i have is you know is it just me or in retrospect is that sharing a beer and a glass of wine scene kind of flirty i was gonna absolutely say that yeah because everybody was skeptical about how the series did that relationship and yet that, that feels like dead on in this scene so are you guys saying that Alana is being flirtatious toward Hannibal or Hannibal toward Alana or both. Just like the scene. The scene feels kind of flirty, just in general. Yeah, I wouldn't necessarily say that either of them is actively flirting with the other, but there is that quality to it that, you know, any viewer of television is going to say, hey, there's potential for a relationship here just based on the interaction that's going on. I, I think... Uh... I, I, I guess I'm saying I disagree with you guys because I guess I I think of Hannibal, his sort of default method of interacting with people is to be disarming with charm and maybe even a little bit seductive. You know, people, there's a lot of, uh, I mean, I haven't searched for it. I'm sure there's a lot of Hannibal and Will or even Hannibal and Jack slash fiction out there. There's got to be. What's that? There's got to be. <laughs> yeah. Or the internet has uh, failed us. <laughs> um and I think that's I, I think that's just Hannibal being Hannibal, and um, maybe um, yeah, setting the uh, planting the seeds for what would happen in season two. But I think Hannibal is always open to the idea of pulling someone under his spell how, in whatever way they respond to. Certainly, and yet there's a different quality to this one, I think, than. Well, I guess Abigail's not a good comparison, but even Margot, there wasn't that aspect there. This this feels of a different kind of um, charm that's going on. Well, that's what I'm saying. That's the that's the one that that's the type of charm that uh, Alana responds to. Hannibal's not going to waste his seduction techniques on Margot because um, you know uh, he doesn't have the right parts for her predilections. Um, uh, yeah. <laughs> um, uh, so I, I, cause 
I mean, for you guys to say that this scene is flirtatious, are you saying then that the season two relationship between Hannibal and Alana has, at least from Hannibal's part, like some, it's like rooted in reality, like actual feelings? Because I, I, no, not I actual felt feelings. That, Han- that Hannibal's just playing Alana just like he plays everyone else. This is just the method that she responded to. Yes, yeah, and I agree with that. Um, what I, why I think that this scene is important for me in rewatching though is because. Um, all of the conversation around that time, when this was just a few months ago, wasn't it, that was about how the show hadn't earned any of that. And yet I think this is good evidence towards the contrary. Yeah, it it was very, very much. It felt like it came out of nowhere and was like, what should we do with Alana? I know she's a woman. So let's just have her randomly be in a relationship with one of the main guys. And this feels like a counter, uh, you know, because, of course, most TV viewers watch an episode maybe once. <laughs> they might stop halfway through, but they watch an episode once. You know, when we do a podcast, we watch it a couple times, maybe three, if it's particularly uh, dense. We really love it uh, before we talk about it. But when they're making episodes, you know, Brian Fuller and the production team, you know, the, various people see these episodes many times before they actually go out. So elements like this the casual viewer will have forgotten by the time we get to season two. And I know because I was a casual viewer (laughs) in season one. And when we got to season two, I had forgotten about many of these, uh, uh, these Alana and Hannibal moments. Um, But the Brian Fuller and the other, you know, some of the other writers and directors and stuff had talked about how there was this sort of built up connection with Alana and Hannibal and that they were just exploring it more in season two. And I, and as a casual viewer of season one, I didn't believe them or didn't uh I, I didn't think that they had earned that moment like you said sean um and so to to see these other elements there you know obviously our viewing is shaped by having seen what comes next but to see these elements there is actually really gratifying and i would connect that to you know i didn't i didn't have as much of an awareness of how many scenes we get with beverly and will i really like their scene that that we get in this episode and um, that connection kind of seemed to come out of nowhere in season two, where she's the one who believes him and, and and they have this really strong bond. But it's all over these first four episodes. It is. You're absolutely right. Um, the, that was also a really funny moment of the episode uh, where he's just not paying attention to the first part of what she's saying. Oh, God, what was the name of the, the person? Uh, he asks, who is? Oh, yeah. Who is uh, Willard Wigan or something like that? Uh, that was great. Well, we had teased talking more about Jack and Bella, um, and where that would go. I don't know if that's if I don't know if you guys had actual thoughts on that, but it came up as something that to maybe discuss in the spoiler segment earlier. Uh, so wait, the reason they're not having kids is because she's you know dying of cancer, right? That's why she says it's too late for me. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I, you know, knowing that what's is what's coming next, and not because. She's distant from him because he's working all the time. But like, literally, it's too late for me. We're going towards a morbid place with it. You know, I I liked knowing that about what was coming next. Uh, Any thoughts, guys? That's Uh, the extent of what I thought, I think. Yeah, but I I also like that first, uh, even though we misunderstand, intentionally misunderstand why it's too late for her, that idea of Jack and Bella, despite loving each other, being on a different page when it comes to the subject of life will, you know, will, will come up, uh, later, you know, Jack wants kids. She 
doesn't or um, even if she does, she knows she can't. Later, Jack will want her to live even when she doesn't. Mm. Yeah. Um, sorry to kill step all over your very thoughtful and reflective moment. The other thing I wanted to mention in the spoiled meat section um, that we talked about earlier was I'm imagining Hannibal's shopping list now that he's in Europe. And I just like the how many Pilsner glasses and burgundy glasses do you think <laughs> he, he's like, I need one for work. Clearly, I need one for home. Does he have like a little like rolly suitcase full of barware? Just should the need arise? <laughs> That's fantastic. Yeah, it's clearly going to come, and I'm going to stick with this uh, prediction that they're going to meet David Duchovny in Europe, and uh, he's the guy that's going to supply him with all of this stuff. That sounds <laughs> delightful. Oh, that's that's wonderful. That that needs to happen. The, the last one I think I have for spoiled meat is, uh, I wonder if you guys have any thoughts on Abigail's mom because we see Alana briefly in that role in this episode. But she just basically is a non-entity throughout the the rest of the series, at least as I recall, certainly in season two. Um, is that something that is underexplored, do you feel, by the rest of the show or specifically season two? Um, and or, or is that a very intentional choice? You know, like I, I was realizing that I don't know the name. I don't think I even know the first name of Abigail's mother. And I feel like I should. Huh. Yeah. They, I believe they mentioned it in the pilot or the second episode. But yeah, I think it's intentional just because um, she is outside of that sphere of influence that is, you know, what all the material that is coming from between Garrett, Jacob Hobbs, and Abigail. Um, so I, I guess because she never like really played a role in any of the events other than just to, to be killed in that scene. Um, it doesn't feel underexplored in a way that I think that there was the potential, like a lot of potential there, because it seemed like we got everything that we needed from Abigail's story. Oh, and I just thought of another thing. Of course, here in this moment, uh, Ab uh, Alana is her mother in the finale. She's her mother again, bleeding out on the front stoop. Yep. 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 Huh. Yep. <laughs> and those are the those are the two times I think of her mother. <laughs> Yeah, I guess, and Alana being her mother and Hannibal being her father, you know, uh, given that in with her life with her real her real parent, her her real parents, her father was the one that had all the influence over her. It's a way of uh, illustrating how Hannibal has asserted himself um, in Abigail's life and superseded Alana. Yeah, even though her mom presumably cared very deeply for her and was, you know, a good mother and all of that. I mean, we see how strongly Alana cares about Abigail in this episode. Um, but, but yeah, at a certain point, she doesn't matter to Abigail as much as Hannibal or her father did. Uh, I like that rude scene, by the way. How fun was that? Rude, Hannibal. <laughs> Shockingly rude, yeah. To, yeah. to use his word against him. That was great. Yeah. That, that's yeah. all I got for spoiled meat. Yeah, I think I, I covered everything or it, it has been mentioned. So we'll, we'll wrap it up there. Uh, again, a slightly longer podcast, but if this is going to be the direction for this season. That is okay with me because this show deserves it, right? <laughs> uh, all right. And thank also, you. Also, when you have a windbag like me on the episodes, <laughs> go a little long. No, it's, it's been great having you, and, and thank you again for coming on, David. Where can our listeners find you online? 
Uh, you can find me talking about movies every week on the Battleship Pretension podcast, which you can find at battleshippretension.com. That's also where um, you find all the movie reviews that I write, as well as links to all the other podcasts in the uh, Battleship Pretension fleet, including my TV podcast, which is called Hey, Watch This with Paul and David. That's Paul, the king of TV, Goble. Uh, and every week we talk about um, some uh, some TV shows. You can find all of that at BattleshipPretension.com and follow me on Twitter at the Pretension. Okay, I heard that you also talk about television sometimes. On occasion, yeah. You can't shut me up about it. And uh, that's on the Televerse podcast over at Sound On Sight with my my wonderful co-host, Sean Coletti. And uh, that goes up every Tuesday night or maybe the wee hours of Wednesday, depending on how much work I have that day. Um, but uh, we talk about the rest of TV there, and uh, that goes up every week. You can also find me on Twitter at the Televerse. And, of course, I've got reviews up at Sound On Sight and also at the AV Club where over the summer I'm reviewing um, – Blackadder, and also Spartacus, so lots of uh, fun for the comedy and genre fans out there. I, I'm i really, really hoping to to sway you to do a Spartacast. Um, that, how I envision it happening is like actually doing episodes that go up on the days that they actually aired, so like <laughs> January, whatever it was, and to do it over four years. Um, cause it's, it's time for me to rewatch that entire series again, I think. It's so good. Oh man. Yeah. Hey, David, are you familiar with Spartacus? Have you seen it? I've never watched it. No. <sighs> you, you need to, it's so good. It's, it's such That's a good show. Yeah. Anyways, sorry. <laughs> uh, in addition to the Televerse, um, which Kay has mentioned, you can find my written work either at tvobermind.com or of course at sound on site. But that's it for this week. Thank you again, listeners for tuning in. This has been another episode of this is our design. Let me in.